As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Bloomberg Audio Studios. Podcasts, radio, news. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Paul Sweeney. Join us each day for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. You can also watch the show live on YouTube. Visit the Bloomberg Podcast channel on YouTube to see the show weekday mornings from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern from our global headquarters in New York City. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, or anywhere else you listen. And always on Bloomberg Radio, the Bloomberg Terminal, and the Bloomberg Business app. There's like cross currents here. And I said, get, you know, surveillance cross current reporter Alex Webb. So joining us from London here on everything in tech and particularly on Apple, Alex Webb. Alex, Macworld just came out with a two-paragraph thing I don't understand, which basically says if Apple in their next roadshow upgrades the iPad, they're going to make old iPad that we're still using not compatible with the new iPad. From where you sit, is their shell game planned obsolescence? where the phone that Lisa Mateo has in six months won't work because they got a new phone? So Apple gets asked about this and they often sort of, they deny that it's planned obsolescence, but they just sort of say, well, it's just the nature of things. Sometimes, you know, technology just has to move on and we want to create the best possible handsets that we do. And therefore, in order to have the best hardware, we have to create the best software. Right. And it's just a sort of natural consequence of that. It's also that, yeah. you know, we do know that essentially the innovations with each new generation of device are a little bit more iterative each time, you know, less of a, of a you know, quantum right. leap. And so the need to kind of like drive software upgrades and like you know, chip upgrades essentially are what is driving the actual handset upgrades. So even if Apple says they don't, a lot of people look at it and go, this kind of is planned obsolescence. So Alex, in terms of moving on, boy, they had a big announcement here just recently. Moving on from the electric car business, the automated car business, can you tell us what their business was, what they were trying to do, and why they walked away? So it's important to qualify, not an announcement, right? Apple has never quite okay, fully great, acknowledged what they were doing here, right? Um, this is all from sources. Mark Gurman's done a brilliant job over the years of chronicling this. Like they started back in 2014 developing a car and it has been a very turbulent decade where they said, actually, we're not going to make a car. Well, they didn't say, but internally they decided we're not going to make a car. We're just going to make autonomous driving systems. Then when they saw sort of Tesla go stratospheric, they went, actually, we are going to make a car. Finally, it seems that they have, you know, put paid to those ambitions the, at the time. And at the, only, the the closest Tim Cook came to talking about it was in 2017, an interview with Emily Chang, our own Emily Chang. And, she, and he said, we think that autonomous driving systems are the biggest AI challenge. And if you look at where things have developed in the past year or so, yeah. there are two things well, that have happened. Firstly, look, the electric vehicle market has become less appealing. And secondly, the AI market has become massively appealing. And so all these people, AI wonks, they have working on the car, they have this huge problem, they don't really have a big AI consumer facing product. So if you can move those to that, then it solves two issues for you. I fortunately mentioned that uh, interview with Tim Cook with uh, our own uh, Bloomberg Television. Let's go to that right now, take a listen. We sort of see it as the mother of all AI projects. It's probably one of the most difficult AI projects actually to, to work on. And so autonomy is something that's incredibly uh, exciting for us. 
and uh, but we'll we'll see where it takes us. All right, that was Tim Cook from Apple speaking with uh, Bloomberg's Emily Chang talking about the the car here, the automated car here, the electric car. So I mean, what does it tell you, Alex? I mean, it, it, I, I kind of feel like. They're just kind of going where the wind's blowing, and now the wind's blowing towards AI, so let's put our resources there. Is there any concern about that? Um, I mean, look, there's a push and a pull effect here, right? I think with the, with the car, there were essentially initially, and I think he said it in that interview as well, three pillars that had been kind yep. of disrupting the car industry. There was ride hailing, there was autonomous vehicles, and there was um, electric vehicles. And essentially, each one of those has gradually eroded. Ride hailing, it transpires, is not a very good business, as Uber shareholders will probably testify. Well, not shareholders, people got out of the stock. Um, you know, the uh, autonomous driving piece is taking a lot longer than had been predicted in 2015, you know, optimistically at scale by maybe 2030. And finally, this EV piece, which has done pretty well for Tesla of late, we've seen sales, the pace of sales growth massively decline and a recalibration from the OEMs on how to do it. Like, you know, actually maybe we should be doing more hybrid than pure electric. And that's what the big car makers are, are pivoting towards now. At the same time, they have missed the boat, right? For now on AI, it's not too late. It's not, it's not irreparable. They can catch up, but they are not right. anywhere compared to the likes of Google. So it is a pivot that is kind of necessary. Isn't this about price? Because I see the complete destruction of a used Tesla price. Some of that, I guess, based on Elon Musk's desire to move cars. I think I saw yesterday Jeep, which is Jeep is traditional engines, right? Sure. They're cutting the price. Nice. Uh, is Well, did they do the math and just say that they can't develop the aesthetic the fit and the finish of Apple, Alex Webb, for a hundred thousand a car, or dare I say, even higher. It's it's always been the big question of like where would an Apple car be positioned yeah. in the market, right? Tesla's been came in as a sort of premium vehicle and gradually working down the value chain, yep. or you know the kind of price chain to becoming more affordable. But as you say, they are having to discount massively and have been in the past year or so to, to, in order to fill the sort of 2 million vehicles of capacity that they've constructed over the past few years. If you compare that, if you think about, you know, super premium car makers like Ferrari, which, you know, is valued at 71 billion euros, it only mm. does 6 billion euros of sale each year, sales each year. That is like, you know, practically, it's not quite a rounding error, but I think Apple does 300 billion. So if you're adding 6 billion of sales, it is not even worth writing <laughs> home about. So is the market big enough for it to be worth Apple's time? Exactly. It's a big question, particularly if they see themselves as a premium brand. Paul, I think this is the heart of the matter. And Mark Gurman's going to tell me, or Alex Webb with their industry-leading reporting is going to tell me. But I, I get it's all this techno babble and, you know, Apple CarPlay and all that. Thank you for being on Apple CarPlay. Paul, this is just about price. Yeah, what a lot are, of it, what yeah. are you going to get it out of the Apple showroom? And, and the answer is the math doesn't work. No, I mean, it for, and it doesn't work for Detroit is kind of what we're hearing. And particularly yeah. when you have a price leader like Elon Musk, it tends to be a little bit I mean, unpredictable. So, yeah. Alex, um, you know, when I you think gonna, about... Can I just add one thing on that? Yeah, sure, like please. The point as well is like you know, a lot of the commentary suggests Apple's going to struggle in the first year to sell meaningful numbers of the headsets, which are three and a half thousand dollars, right? So if you're having a vehicle that is a hundred thousand yep. dollars, the law of small well, numbers with that okay. kind of big number <laughs> give us a, more quickly. Give but, us an update here, Alex. We're what one month into this idiocy, F success or failure? The headset. Look, I mean, the thing I've been saying from day one is it doesn't need to be a success as long as whatever Facebook does is not a success, right? This is the first generation. They're going to come down. They're going to make cheaper versions. You know, this is about proving out the technology, getting in the hands of developers so that then they build products for the platform. So it's too early to say Apple's push into this space is a success or a failure. The key thing is, as long as this market does not take off um, and someone else owns it, Apple doesn't need it to be a huge success. Yep. Alex, a lot of the Apple bulls are telling me, don't worry about AI. Apple's, you know, they, they're not first to the to the game, but they come in when it's an opportune time to come in, even with phone, telephones back in the day, cell phones, they weren't the first. Is that a valid argument for AI or is there a material risk that they're late, maybe too late? No, I, I think there's, there's certainly pertinence to that. We're very early in this sort of AI revolution or I increasingly think of it as more of an evolution. Um, they have not complete, completely missed out on this, uh, but they do still need to get moving, right? They do, do still need to get at, to that table. 
course, the advantage they have is you can still access a lot of the AI products through their through their platform, right? ChatGPT is an app. Open OpenAI has an a ChatGPT right. app that I have on my iPhone. So, like on that basis, it's kind of okay. We're not yet seeing, mm. and it's, it's we'll struggle to see. I I personally struggle to see how it will work. Right. You'll have fully AI voice assistants like Google Assistant or Alexa. We're not seeing yeah. those come out just yet. Like I think they've got a little bit of time until the cost come down and the processing yeah. power for that to be a real threat. Elsewhere, thank you so much. In yep. London. This is the most important conversation of the day. Bob Michaels with us. And then Paul, as you mentioned when we were chatting before at Bankers Trust, which was iconic years ago, yeah. and all sorts of work in the United Kingdom and now holding court for Mr. Diamond. He has to brief James Diamond on what yields are gonna do, imagine that. But I wanna talk about, you look great today, by the way. And YouTube, can you see this? I mean, Michael with a bow tie, thank you. Solid. He's sartorial solid. I wanna look good on radio, I told you. <laughs> you and others, we had a guest the other day, and Paul noted that he had Near East Anthropology as his parchment BA. Right now, liberal arts, and particularly the classics, the classics. are getting killed across American universities. You're at Penn, it's truly definitive under classical studies defend right now the value you got out of a classical studies education to get you to worry about duration and convexity <laughs> so there are many other things you study at university and i did a lot of sciences which ultimately helped me with bond math but i <laughs> always thought of classics as my avocation while I was studying other things that I knew would lead to a vocation. And I think if you get that balance, it makes for a far better university life. I totally agree yep. in the strongest point. sense. Did you study Latin and Greek? Are you like former Prime Minister Johnson, where you can waltz right now into Latin or, or Greek? Arma virumque cano troiae qui primus aboris. Can we, first, can we get that tape? Bob, Robert Brockton, you, can you be sure you, that we get that tape? Do you want it in here? group? Few, few, few teapate gegene. Oh, there again, you go. please? Few, few teapate gegene, Thrasymachus. There you go. You learn it, you never forget it. <laughs> That's great. Paul, can you save the damn interview? Well, I can save it, I can save it because he also got a CFA. <clears throat> that got him to where he is today, so we're in good shape. So, Bob, what do we do here? I mean, we're going to get a big inflation print tomorrow. A lot of folks are trying to figure out what this Federal Reserve is going to do. It seems like, you know, March off the table, May, not sure, maybe push it back to June for a rate cut. How are you guys at Morgan Stanley thinking about this? Honestly, uh, Paul, I, I just want to enjoy the soft landing. Okay. Uh, we're in the midst of it now. We've got very low unemployment. We've got stable inflation. I, we look at the six-month annualized rate of core PC. It's currently 1.9%. Tomorrow, we'll likely get a 0.4. We'll push it up to 2.4. It's okay. okay. It's in touching distance of 2%. You go back a few years, it was 6.6%. So I, I think the Fed is right to just pause here. I think if they look at inflation on a shorter term basis, they have to be real happy with it. But they were late to hiking rates, thinking inflation yeah. would be transitory. They can't make that mistake again. So June still looks like ours and everyone else's central case. All right. I said Morgan saying, of course, at JP Morgan, it's all Morgan's, you know, at some point in time. Back, back, back when it probably back was. Back in the day when it was. Um, so, I mean, you think about this market, I'm looking at INGO on the Bloomberg terminal. That's the Bloomberg index browser and you get all the fixed income indexes, most of which Bloomberg owns. Um, we're, we're in the red this year. 2022 is just brutal for the fixed income market. A little bit of performance last year, thanks to November and December. Yep. Now where do I go in the fixed income system? What are you walking around the trading floor? What are the, your traders doing? So the, there are a couple things. And I was out at a dinner last night with about 50 financial advisors, and we were talking about this. Um, and, and my greatest concern is not that the market rallies to, to 1%. I don't really want that. I'd rather have the market back up to about 5% to give more investors an opportunity to get into the market. Hmm. And I think well, when you, when you, well, you look at the, the amount of money in money market funds, it's five and right. a half percent. It, people want to get in, they want a slightly higher yield. You look at pension funds, they, they want <laughs> a slightly higher yield. I look at the aggregate bond index. 
at the end of December 31, 2022, it was 4.67% yield, 4.7%. And we were looking at four additional rate hikes at the start of 2023. This morning, 5.0%. So you're up about 30 basis points, and we're looking right. at three to five rate cuts this year. And Michael Ferroli is going to tell you we're a long way from potential GDP, and for whatever reason, let's say the stimulus, whatever. But I'm just imagining. I mean, I mean, the new Park Avenue offices at J.P. Morgan. Oh boy, They'll, Jamie will have a lunch up in the girders, like yep. it's like you know one of those photos. Black Can't and white wait from to get the, inside that. Go, uh, Bob, come yep. on up with me and sit on a C- girder. Come and broadcast and from there. We, yeah. We'd like to do it. Uh, seriously, I'd like to do that. You line up, you and Mr. Diamond, and the number one question Mr. Diamond's going to have for you or his team is all this cash that's out there. How does Bob Michaels think the deployment of trillions of dollars of cash at the margin will occur? Well, I I think it's going to go into a lot of different places. First, I think a lot of it will stay where it is because you get a yield on cash, which you didn't get before. And, you know, the Fed cuts rates a few hundred, but let's say they take it down to 3%, you're still going to get a yield on cash of about 3%. I think a lot of it's coming into the bond market. Everyone is waiting for the Fed to cut rates. Right. That makes cash less attractive. That's where a lot of it goes. Of course, we're doing almost no Fed talk because we're talking NVIDIA. Bob Michael doesn't <laughs> know what NVIDIA is. Let's listen to Chairman Powell here. There we go. Bob didn't have his headphones on. We just played uh, uh, Jerome Powell saying some Latin there that okay. was, was, awesome. was briefed on as well. Do the press conferences make any sense in, sense to you, or is Jerome Powell speaking Latin? Um, I, I, I think they're going in the current. So you go back to December and the infamous pivot with the 10-year yeah. at about 4.20%. It, it looked like inflation was coming down very rapidly, and that was room for them to start bringing down rates. Um, I think at these recent and upcoming press conferences, inflation's going to be a little bit north of 2%. So you're going to hear them try and dampen the expectation that right. the Fed might step in in March or May. Fixed income, currencies, commodities, the FIC group, that's kind of where you are. Let's talk about commodities. Is there a commodities play out there? What are we doing? It's a lot of people tell me to just buy gold and sell everything else on the commodity space. Or Bitcoin. Yes, I, I Bitcoin like, is 60,000. I like 000. to think it comes into the greater well, FIC protectorate. Yes. I don't know exactly what it is, but, but you're it's JP something Morgan, in there. And JP Morgan, I'm not sure your boss has <laughs> bought on to this Bitcoin thing. Yeah, I, I think the, <laughs> the whole issue with the commodity complex is there was a lot of ex- expectation a year ago about China reopening. Right. Yep. And it reopened, but not with the momentum that everyone thought. So suddenly things look a little bit overpriced. You're starting to see that even with energy, you look at what's happened in the Middle East, and, and you would have thought energy uh, yep. oil would be north of 100, and it's not. So I think it's also telling us that the broader global economy is also ratcheting down from where it was. These are all good things for central banks. A couple of days ago, we had a firestorm. This is for Global Wall Street for the CFA Institute. Good morning, Mary, uh, down in Charlottesville. And with us is Bob Michael of J.P. Morgan. Uh, he and I have darkened the door of the uh, Chartered Financial Analyst Program. We both survived. Daniel Perlis was on, who's got a wonderful book out, which basically says M&M theory doesn't work. This is not candy. It's not Hershey's. It is uh, Miller and Medigliani, Medigliani and Miller. And it was a theory that came up years ago. I want you to tell me about fancy CFA math in the bond market and in market capitalization against super big tech firms that have 3% debt, your world. I'm just baffled by how they have so little debt and the veracity of what you and I were weaned on with Merton Miller and, and Medigliani. Well, we've been through this before because there were other companies in other industries that generated a tremendous amount of free cash flow, and the bond market would have liked to have welcomed them with open arms and parked their debt for a long period of time, and they just didn't issue a lot. I think of Walmart going back 30 mm-hmm. years. There were times when people refer to Bristol-Myers debt as 
a museum right. piece because <laughs> they didn't issue enough. And, and, you know, this is just where we are in the U.S. economy, where the tech industry is the one which is seeing a lot of, of top-line growth, a lot of revenue, a lot of free cash flow, and that's able to sustain their R&D budgets and allow right. them to do other things. What is the efficacy of a big tech company moving from 3% to a responsible level of debt? I don't know, Paul, 8 9 10%, whatever. What, what's, is there a social good to that? Um, there's, there's a shareholder good to that because if, if they're able to borrow, let's say in the current market environment, borrow 10-year at around 5% and use those proceeds to buy back shares of stock, you would assume the return on equity would be much higher than the 5% that they're borrowing at. Um, and I think you see some of that going on. But you're looking at, at just one industry right now that, that has everything going for it. And, and rightly so. Mm. That's the key to efficiency and productivity going forward. Hey, Bob, if I want to take some credit risk here, what do you recommend? Stay in that investment grade space? Or do I even go out into some of the, the high yield? Because high yield is where the performance has been. Like last year, I was surprised <clears throat> high yield performed as well as it did because everybody was telling me about a recession. But high yield really performed. Yeah. And and that it's the great question because the difference between owning just investment grade or both investment grade and below investment grade comes down to your call on recession or not. Yep. And I would say this time last year, for sure, it looked like we were heading to recession. Maybe we did. Maybe the regional banking crisis was a recession and the policy response solved it in a couple of weeks. I don't know. But at the start of this year, there's nothing out there that tells us we're heading into recession. We like credit. We're using every opportunity to buy it. That includes high yield. I know you had a conversation earlier about the private credit market. We look at the private credit market as having absorbed a lot of the marginal borrowers that would have come in the public high yield market okay. previous cycle. So it's there. And I think the way we look at private credit is it's effectively reinsuring the public credit markets. So we look at U.S. public high yield. First of all, 6% of it defaulted away in 2020. So you had survivor bias with the remaining 94%. Okay. You look at corporate fundamentals, they look very strong. You look at the issuance that would have been marginal, that's in the private credit market. We have to accept that private credit is a new and very powerful source of non-bank lending that didn't exist in Can you guys get exposure to that? Do you, I mean, what do you guys do? We, we're not putting it in public funds, but right. I will tell you, our clients, well, whether it's retail or institutional, yeah. they're going in full speed ahead. Yep. And I know there's a lot of controversy on mark-to-market, but it really is the equivalent of a bank making a loan. And, you know, you roll 18 months forward, some of the legacy loans look a little bit stale with current pricing. They'll reset, and then you're going to have some credit issues. And until you work them out, you're going to carry them as money good unless they're your... What timeline do you and your team have in your head for that workout of private credit and the fiction of what the pricing is? Is it oh, I seven think, year? I think a lot of it's going on now. I, I think that there was a lot of marginal borrowing over the last couple of years. Um, I think the mm -hmm. beauty of private credit is there's a lot of dry power. It steps in, right. it applies a haircut, right. and does a lot of restructuring. Right. But let's not forget private credit pre-financial crisis 2007 was about zero. I'm sure there was some out there, but it didn't right. exist. And now you're talking estimates are 1.6 trillion, which is an equal in size to the public high yield markets. And whether you quibble or not about how it's being deployed and right. and how it's being yeah. marked, right. that and some of its dry power, a lot of that has gone into the economy. It's, right. it's gone to places which have hired workers and created a level of economic activity. And that's probably another reason that we managed to skate through last year right. with pretty good economics. James Diamond in the news today looking at Texas. And Jay, have you been mm. to the J.P. Morgan offices in Texas? I was just in Texas a couple weeks ago. What's we had a magic, big conference What's there. the pixie dust of the Texas economy that Mr. Diamond is talking about today? <laughs> I wouldn't even want to hazard a guess. I, 
We've seen a lot this of money. conversation ended ugly. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, I, it, it's interesting. I mean, it's, we're seeing so many financial services companies, Tom, and other companies, including Tesla, relocate to Texas. Yeah, for, McGlone uh, Incorporated. It, it, yeah. Down in Miami. Hey, do, you, do you know what's also missing this cycle? Any problem in municipalities. Right. Where is a municipality that's under pressure? Where is the next Puerto Rico? Where is the concern over Chicago or yep. Illinois or California? It's not there. And you, we look at the state rainy day funds, and they're still flush with a lot of cash. Well, you states, saw, that, states that didn't have rainy day funds. The chancellor today in the United Kingdom is saying, I'm sorry, tax revenues are better in the United Kingdom than anybody imagined. I mean, and again, it's this misguess yep. on a slow economy. And Miss Palace, been, yeah. This so, has been wonderful. Yeah. Muni bonds. I'm yep. going to leave muni bonds. Talk to well, financial advisors. Your, great. Come back with your muni bond expert. <laughs> I, no, seriously. Wait. I'd love that. You can be the could expert. Be it could no, be me. No, it could be you. But, but, you know, if you want to drag somebody along with you that can give us the credit on the Denver airport or something like that, that'd be very good. Bob Michael, this has been uh, wonderful. The low point was a Greek-Latin discussion. You know, hey, we learned a you, you started there. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. It was great. We've got yeah. this codified forever here. Yep. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs, to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Without question, foreign affairs and the Council on Foreign Relations is leading with our dialogue on our fractured geopolitical world, all of this starting with the stewardship of Richard Haas. Ambassador, thank you. Uh, in your retirement, I can't believe you're retired for joining us uh, today. I, I'm gonna start with an open question, Richard Haas, and this goes back to your wonderful book, The World. Do we have a foreign policy? Does America have an identifiable theme, strategy, or plan? Well, Tom, first of all, it's great to be back with you. Uh, second, um, I'm busier than ever, uh, not retired, uh, retired for old people. The, uh, does America have a foreign policy? Uh, we either have none or we have several, uh, e either way. But what we don't have is a coherent, consistent one that enjoys broad support. And that's a real problem. If you want to be a great power, your friends, your allies right. uh, need, to be, need to see you as reliable we are clearly not, and your foes need to see you as uh, formidable. And I think they increasingly have questions. So whatever it is we have, it's it's not succeeding. The color force and new isolationism. I understand it's across a political landscape from Mr. Trump to Mr. Biden. But how do you perceive the ancient American tradition to say we're protected by oceans? We really don't want to play in the international relations game. Yeah, Tom, it's an important question. It's, uh, isolationism is something that never disappears. It's almost like a, a gene yeah. in the body politic. And every once in a while, it breaks out. I think now it's you know, three and a half decades after the end of the Cold War. We're seeing it. I, it's, not, it's not evenly spread across the political spe spectrum. I think it's largely, uh, not entirely, but largely now in the province of the Republican Party. We see it most virulently in the House of Representatives, the more radical uh, Republicans who are obviously hitching their wagon to, to Donald Trump. And I think what we're seeing is a traditional pullback from the world, a sense that we have to worry more about butter than, than guns, even though withdrawal from the world, as we've learned historically, is truly dangerous. And even though our domestic problems aren't caused by a lack of spending so much as how we spend our, our money. But that said, uh, the resurgence of isolationism is a real threat. We're seeing it, obviously, in the case of uh, Ukraine, uh, but we're seeing it also across the world. I've just come back from a trip to the Middle East, and I've got to tell you, our friends look at us there. I've also recently been in, in, in Europe and Asia, 
And it's the number one topic on the mind of every American friend, partner, and ally is can we continue to count on you? So, Richard, let's let's kind of go to some of the hotspots around the world here. Let's start with uh, Ukraine here, because, I mean, it, it's front and center here in terms of getting a new aid bill for Ukraine. Can you give us your latest thoughts on kind of how you think the U.S. position vis-a-vis Ukraine will play out over the coming weeks and months? Look, here we are at the beginning of the third year of this phase of the war. The glass is half full if you look at how well Ukraine has done with American and European help. But recent trends have got to leave people worried as Russia's throwing much more mass at this conflict than Ukraine is now able to, to counter with, given the falling off of American help. And I don't have a crystal ball whether ultimately the Speaker of the House of Representatives will figure out a way to provide new military aid to Ukraine. So it's possible we drift through the uh, election in November without new help, in which case Ukraine will hang on, uh, but it will gradually lose some territory. Or there'll be maybe a partial renewal of American aid, which is my bet. You won't get the full amount the president wants, but you'll get something. And again, I think at the end of this year, the third year of fighting of this phase of the war, I think you'll have a battlefield that pretty much looks the way it does now, uh, with Ukraine still in control of roughly 75 to 80 percent of its territory. And then this one way or another, the war will either continue or we'll see a stage set for some type of uh, negotiation. All right, let's switch gears to the Middle East, because, again, similar to Ukraine, it doesn't seem like there's any near term resolution here. How do you think the political calculus, the military calculus stacks up in that part of the world? Well, you're right. There isn't any near term resolution. At most, there'll be another temporary ceasefire with an agreement to release some hostages, allow some prisoners to to get out of uh, jail. Uh, more aid to get into Gaza, but that's not to be confused with a strategic end to the conflict, and there can't be. Uh, This Israeli government is looking at a long-term occupation. It rejects working with the Palestinian Authority. Hamas is obviously unacceptable. Uh, So there's no, the prerequisites of stability or peace are simply not there no matter how much the United States might might urge them. There's also the danger of the war widening. So I think we have to yeah. assume that a, a turbulent Middle East is mm. the backdrop for, for the foreseeable future. Ambassador Haas with us, Richard Haas with his folks, can't say enough about uh, his legacy at the Council on Foreign Relations. Full disclosure, I'm a member there. In Foreign Affairs Magazine, subscribe throw to your children and say, just shut up and read one article, pick any article. (laughs) So Ambassador, um, I did a panel at Davos with Lawrence Friedman of King's College, obviously definitive on war and particularly with a continental perspective. And his piece in foreign affairs this month is something I think we're not thinking of, which is instead of us, Congress, maybe Ukraine, obviously Lawrence Friedman's thinking about Putin and he makes it real uh, real clear it's a war Putin still can't win. How close would you suggest we are to diplomacy or negotiation with Mr. Putin? First of all, it's good to see you quoting uh, Lawrence Friedman. He and I were students at Oxford together. And over the last 40, 50 years, he, Laurie is just one of the most thoughtful yeah. uh, people writing about international relations that is that, uh, out there. I, I think, Tom, we're not in the realm of negotiations this year. Everybody... Uh, Putin wants to see what happens in November. He's hoping that time is his friend. And I think the Ukrainians are not yet prepared to enter a negotiation where they would have to at least temporarily give up the reality uh, that they're not going to yeah. get their, their territory back through military force. I think if you have a situation, let me just paint it for you. If Joe Biden gets reelected, if you have a Republican Senate, which you're almost certain to have, and if the House goes Democratic, that would be the best outcome for Ukraine. And I think that would send a signal to Putin that right. time isn't his friend. And I could see that bringing Russia to the negotiating table. On the other hand, if Donald Trump wins or if the House stays Republican, that I think that weakens Ukraine. And then the question for Ukraine is, are they prepared to have a negotiation uh, without a lot of wind in their sails? And that would be obviously a much more fraught, dangerous sort of uh, diplomatic context. But one way or another, okay. I think we're, we're moving in the direction of diplomacy. The question right. is, who does it favor? 
Ambassador David, and you know, out on live chat, this is on YouTube, folks, we're getting some really brilliant questions in. And David brings it right over to what we're talking about, Ambassador, where he's saying, okay, we're watching Ukraine, but so is China. Does our behavior on the continent of Europe affect the math that Beijing has as they look at Taipei? Uh, Tom, absolutely. Uh, you know, these things may be squares on the chessboard, but everything we do or don't do sends a message, not simply about our capability, but our willingness to act. And America's capability is unparalleled, but our will is increasingly questioned. So China is watching what is going on with the congressional uh, holding up of aid. They're looking at American political dysfunction and, and division. They want to see what happens in November. So I think this year, 2024, the Chinese have made the strategic determination. They want stability in the U.S.-China relationship. We saw that in November when Xi Jinping and Joe Biden met. China doesn't want to see new American economic limits on trade or investment. But depending upon what happens here in November, when they take their the America, their, when they take their look at America's will and uh, to come to Taiwan's defense, things could change. So I think, again, this year things are calm. But China is watching what happens with Ukraine, watching what happens with our domestic politics. Mm -hmm. And I think the most interesting moments will come in the aftermath of November when they basically, you know, their equivalent of the CIA uh, draws up their assessments of American willingness to act on behalf of its friends in, in, in Asia. Dr. Haas, can you give us a sense of the relative position of Mr. Putin in Russia with his people in terms of support? Is it as strong as it appears to us on the outside, it seems like, boy, this is a tough war. You know, lots of casualties. How, how is this position internally? Well, you're going to be hearing from Angela Stent, who's yep. one of the country's you know, leading experts. But I think Putin's, in, I think he's very strong. Okay. And I think a lot of the so-called Russian experts mm -hmm. got it wrong after the Prigozhin challenge. They thought Putin was weak and on the ropes. I think he largely controls the narrative inside his country. The murder of Navalny, and let's call it what it is, it was a murder. Uh, it, it just shows the impunity with which right. he, he acts. He's done a pretty good job of casting this with Russia as victim, even though Russia's the aggressor. So I think anyone who's hoping that this war is going to come to an end because suddenly there's going to be regime change in Russia, I think they're kidding themselves. Ambassador, we need to make some news today. Now that you're completely retired and sliding <laughs> through the day five days a week, would you consider public service to America again, whether it is on Ireland or another matter? Whoever, whatever the election outcome is in November, can we see Haas in Washington? Well, Tom, I'd like to think that one does public service on the outside, whether it's appearing on shows like yours or uh, I do a, a weekly newsletter called Home and Away, which uh, people can find on Substack. I think there's lots of ways to contribute. But sure, look, I work for four presidents. I've been uh, honored to do that. I've worked you know, for Democrats and Republicans from Jimmy Carter through George W. Bush. And, uh, and, and even now I talk regularly to people in the government. So I, I'm always looking for ways or always prepared to be. To, to serve this uh, this country, particularly now. Yeah. This, yeah, this is a truly critical time in our history, yes. both domestically and internationally. This is not a, you know, democracy is not a spectator sport. This is a time for, uh, you know, for what I would call true patriots. That word is now abused. Yep. But for people who care yeah. about this country, it's a time to get informed, get involved. And of course, if uh, any, you know, if uh, I think I can actually, you know, help, uh, of course, of course, I would. Uh, two back-to-back -back really sharp books, The World yep. and also uh, The Bill of Obligations as well. Richard Haas, thank you so much. Ambassador Haas, retired. I love yeah, busting his job. He's not the guy's yeah. working like a 15-hour <laughs> exactly. day, seven days a week. Richard Haas there, of course, with all of his work with the Council on Foreign uh, Relations. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more, Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts.
This is an honor, folks. The shock of Mr. Putin and what he did on February 24th, I had to jumpstart my book of the summer, and it took somewhere in the vicinity of 12 seconds, Paul, to know immediately that Putin's world, Russia against the West and with the rest, is the only book. It is Angela Stent on Vladimir Putin, jaw-dropping about how he got to where he is. We are honored that from the Brookings Institution, their non-resident senior fellow, uh, Angela Stent, joins us uh, this morning for an update. Angela, if you had to redo Putin's world today with a new prologue or epilogue, what would you write? Well, I think it reinforces everything that I wrote in the book. But even when I wrote that book, I didn't expect a full-scale invasion of Ukraine and Putin just completely turning against the West like that. Uh, so, I mean, I said in the book that Putin was out to uh, revise the post-Cold War order, that he didn't accept the collapse of the Soviet Union, uh, but he's done it much more aggressively right. and probably sooner than I would have thought. You yeah. know, I, I think of Robert Gates and Condoleezza Rice in Belgrade a long time ago. And there was this whole back and forth, and it was basically Mearsheimer of Chicago and others with realist politics saying, don't push, don't push, and others saying, we've got to expand, et cetera. And here we are, Dr. Stent, with Paul, I still can't believe I'm saying this, Finland and Sweden yep. in NATO. Angela Stent, how does that change the calculus for Putin's world to have everything going wrong from Turkey, from Istanbul, from Ankara, up to Stockholm and Helsinki? So obviously, uh, this is one of Putin's great achievements, unintended to have the Baltic Sea now a NATO lake. Uh, but <laughs> it's not going to change, you know, his conviction that the West is against him and that he can outlast them and in a way outmaneuver them. Um, so he's just doubling down now. Um, I would say that the both the Russia-Ukraine war and the Israel-Hamas war have actually given him more influence in what the Russians now call the world majority and we call the global south. So he's actually gaining uh, uh, adherence there. And Russia is back in Africa in a way that it hasn't been since the Soviet collapse. Yeah. Angela, yeah. talk to us about kind of what's going on within Russia. How much support does Mr. Putin have among the populace? Do they not have, does he not have the headwinds that maybe we had in past wars, seeing body bags come home and that type of thing? Talk to us about how the populace is feeling. Yeah, so the latest opinion polls by the independent polling organization, Levada, still show that Putin has a 70% popularity rate even though uh, more than 50% of the Russians now say that they wish the war would end and there should be negotiations, but they don't want Russia to give territory up. So don't forget, a lot of those Russians, they don't, they're not shown on their official TV screens, the body bags coming back. People obviously know that in local towns and villages where they see them coming back. And we have seen protests by mothers and wives saying, you know, our men were mobilized in 2022 and they've basically not come back yet. But it's such a repressive society and the penalties for expressing your opinions are so great that that's really dampened uh, popular uh, unrest, if you like, and opposition to mm. this war. Angela, so from your perspective, I mean, I guess if we think back, just look at history, there's no reason to think that the Russians will grow tired of this. We've seen in their history, how they can take so much pain for such a long period of time. How do you think they view a solution here to Ukraine? Is it absolute victory or can there be something negotiated? So I think at this point, Putin is waiting uh, for the results of our presidential election in November, hoping that we'll have a president that will cut all assistance and support for Ukraine. But I think the way they see it is they're going to hold out. As you say, they've done that many times in history. Uh, in the end, the, the Europeans and the U.S., they're resolved. Well, we can look what's going on in our own Congress. We can't even appropriate the $60 billion for Ukraine. Um, I think at the moment... Putin probably understands that he can't take the whole of Ukraine, but he could get a settlement. He could then, uh, where the Ukrainians would have to make concessions on territory, and then the army could regroup. And remember, he told Tucker Carlson, our goal is the denazification of Ukraine, and that means regime change in Ukraine. So in the right. long run, that's still what he's after.
Uh, and Dr. Stern, let me circle back to our conversation with Richard Haas earlier uh, this morning mm -hmm. and, and to ask you, and this is playing off of a fabulous foreign affairs article uh, from a, a number of months ago where Angela Stent, folks, looks at America and the world's middle powers. Do you detect yeah. a foreign policy that's coherent in Washington? Um, unfortunately, I'm not sure, you know, particularly towards dealing with these countries in the global south, um, uh, you know, they're on the fence about all of this. I think democracy versus autocracy, casting it as that is not very helpful and it hasn't been very productive. So I think we really have to impress on these countries that what Russia is doing is, you know, a violation of the UN Charter of International Law. And if Russia can get away with it, who knows who might invade them and get away with it, too. Angela, thank you so much. Angela Stent with us thank with you. Brookings in her fabulous book, Putin's at World. You daily look at the front pages. Tell me it's not on Beyond Meat. No, it's not on Beyond Meat, <laughs> most definitely. But it has to do with food. So there you go. Um, Americans are starting to talk more about what they're doing differently, how they're changing how and what they eat, how they're changing how they live because of food inflation. So these are people who responded to a Wall Street <coughs> Journal article. They're talking about how they're doing potluck dinners. That's something different. They're eating rice and beans instead of meat, so they still get their protein. They're planning meals. They're making spreadsheets to do this. Wow. They're buying more in bulk, so they're going more Costco runs yep. maybe, clipping coupons. Um, they're cooking simpler meals. So now things like meatloaf and tuna casserole are coming back again because they're tuna cheaper to tuna, tuna bake they're cheaper and easier to make yeah. there you go um and they're also doing things which i found interesting they're gardening they're imposing limits on eating out which i know my family's doing we're cutting back on how much we eat out and then they're hunting and fishing oh, for their please. food <laughs> they're doing that tom on the upper east side how about <laughs> <a Central> park <laughs> you know oh look a squirrel okay vet mill go get the squirrel heather long in the washington post they, they quote constant hunter working with Diane Swank today as well. The headline, we've been looking at inflation the wrong way. Ooh. And John Sylvia, ex-Wells Fargo, has been brilliant on this. And I think you're just dead on, Lisa. I mean, I, I, I take great offense from people looking at Q over Q, yeah. year over year. I buy the store brand yeah. stuff oh, versus yes. some of the, I mean, that's one. like 30, 40% discount. Yes. I didn't even think about that until several years ago. Now I mean, it's a, become much more of a so thing. True, so I, true. I'm looking at the photo here in the Washington Post, and they don't say what the store is. The store's in Bethesda, Maryland. But I'm looking at the milk that comes in the door at my mm -hmm. house. And I might as well be buying beer. I mean, so, you know, <laughs> I might as well be analogy. buying craft beer for what it is. <laughs> a six pack. Uh, okay, since we're on the topic of money, did you know this, that having $5 million is no longer enough to crack the top 1% tier in the U.S.? Ooh. This is research from Knight Frank. It now takes at least $5.8 to join that richest tier of Americans, 15% more than it was a year ago. The top spot for the highest threshold worldwide, Monaco. 12.8 million. No surprise. We have Luxembourg, Switzerland. It takes about 8 million to make the cut there. But they're just talking about different things in the article, like why Russia's invasion of Ukraine hurting the economy. People, when they were just starting to recover from the pandemic, um, that sent prices for energy, food surging. So you see that threshold is starting to tick up a bit. It takes it, more. It, to me, it really talks to the yeah. failure of the American retirement system. Roger Ferguson's mm. led on this at TIA. Yes. I'm not sure what he's, the former vice chairman is doing right now. But this idea that the U.S. government has that $500,000 is a lot of money is just incredibly wrong mm -hmm. and off the mark about what is comfortable uh, that you need. I mean, Ken, I'm, I mean, Ken, the answer is what you're trying to do, Ken, is is to retire and listen to the sound of the shores. I mean, you know, there's just no question you want to retire with X the million. Waves. Ah. Yep. There oh, we're retired. Okay. Continue one more. I'm distracted now. I can use some of that. Uh, okay, next one is from USA Today. It's a warning actually for Netflix customers who pay their account through Apple. So apparently, Oops. yeah, you their billing statements, their streaming subscription through Apple's iTunes or App Store, they're no longer going to be an option. So you have to change it by the next billing cycle 
or you won't be getting Netflix anymore. Really? So Wait it's, a it's something that happened back in 2018, from what I understand. Um, and then now what happened is know. that those people who were grandfathered, well, now it's their turn. So now they have to start, you know, switching. I, I over. just, I just assume Netflix is going to charge me. Uh, they're going to take no my money somehow. They're going to take but my money. But not somehow. if it's Apple. They All will right. find you. Yeah, but yes. I'll figure it out. <laughs> a couple years ago, they will find you. <laughs> I figured out I was paying for three Netflix accounts. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> thanks. Serious. I'm, no, I'm thankful true. to Netflix for, you know, putting that to bed because I exactly I had like yeah. some offspring on my credit card. Ah. Netflix took care of that for me. I don't get good. the. I, I still fact, do. There's just one small account. It's like nine ninety nine a year or whatever. No, it happened. I, I was don't know trying where to they watch, come from. If I they're was, from Apple or from, you know. <laughs> from somewhere. Else. I, I was trying know. to watch Netflix the other day, and it said I couldn't because I had too many users. Now I just re-signed up for Major League Baseball to enjoy the Red Sox really? losing. And they raised it five dollars. Okay, you know that's the Paul Sweet. You've been way yeah. out front here. Yep, when absolutely. When in doubt, raise the fee. Sure. And yep. people will pay. And people will pay it. That's I'll amazing. pay anything to see the Detroit Tigers walk fourteen people. <laughs> right. Exactly. Are you done, or Let's, do you have one more? No, this is, this really is a good. good one. Oh yeah, Please. yeah. New York Times. They say that there's a new trend on TikTok. It's people posting and asking commenters. How old do you think oh, yeah. I am? Oh, <laughs> this is the new thing. Yeah. Thank you for bringing this Apparently it started because it was someone from Gen Z who's at like 11 to 26 year age who did it because there are studies that show that Gen Z is aging faster than millennials. Oh, so there was this competition back and forth. But people, I, know, I mean, I you're asking for trouble. That's sociology what I say. Majors. I, I don't know. You, you post it okay. out there and you ask people how old do you think you are? I, I don't know. I, I don't I'm YouTube, curious live what people chat, will say. You know? How old do you think I am? What do they say? Ooh, What's that's the phrase? It. Yes, how old do you think I am? How old do you think I am? All right, we'll put that out on Ooh, the chat. Uh, put it on the chat, chat. yes. Yeah, yeah, sure. you know, Post that. Chat, you know. See how that's going. Start Whoa, 104. <laughs> <laughs> what could go wrong there? Very. Thank you, Rich. That was good to... Rich is right on... Lisa Mateo, that was very strong. Thank you. You got it. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast, bringing you the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. You can also watch the show live on YouTube. Visit the Bloomberg Podcast channel on YouTube to see the show weekday mornings from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern from our global headquarters in New York City. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, or anywhere else you listen. And always on Bloomberg Radio, the Bloomberg Terminal, and the Bloomberg Business App. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts.